All right, business meeting over. Let's uh, start Sunday school. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we thank you for a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful day. We thank you for the coming of spring. We are so thankful for uh, your goodness. And Lord, we pray that you would be with us uh, as new life returns to uh, our corner of the globe. Lord, we pray that you also would uh, bring new life uh, to the churches in this city. And Lord, bring uh, new zeal to all believers here, that we would want to proclaim the gospel and not stop there, but also adorn that gospel with love and forgiveness and mercy. And Lord, that, that uh, we would want to treat people as precious, made in the image of God, uh, and love them and, and show them uh, the kind of unconditional love that, that uh, you have shown us. We pray all this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. All right, so we are now on question 81. Let's read that together. What is required to the worthy receiving of the Lord's Supper? Answer, it is required of them who would worthily partake of the Lord's Supper that they examine themselves of their knowledge to discern the Lord's body, of their faith to feed upon him, of their repentance, love, and new obedience, lest coming unworthily, they eat and drink judgment to themselves. Lots of 1 Corinthians 11 there in the, uh, the proof text. In fact, maybe somebody would just want to read for us um, a chunk that comprises from at least 18 to 31. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I command you in this, or commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. Lot there. Sounds like there was a problem in Corinth uh, involving the Lord's Supper. And there are several aspects of that that should, in my mind, be bullet points here. In, the, in fact, maybe someone just needs to reformat this in order to, uh, you know, the carriage returns and bullet points in order to make all the answers a little bit more A, easily um, understood and B, easily re repeated in unison. 
you know, you'd know where to break a little better. There's, um, there's, there's, yeah, there are commas, which, uh, I don't know, I feel like sometimes Baptists are like, I don't get told what to do by no commas. I'm going to pause where I want to. I'm going to plow ahead really loudly where I want to. Um, I had never thought of it, but maybe it's not just lack of practice, but like a Baptist spirit of individuality and soul liberty that makes a couple people in every Baptist congregation where there's a litany or a uh, prayer in unison or some kind of responsive reading uh, go rogue. Um, Okay, so it's required of them who would worthily partake of the Lord's Supper that they examine themselves of their knowledge to discern the Lord's body. That's the first thing. And that seems like a strange first thing, I think, to our ears. We, we think, when I hear examine yourself for the Lord's Supper, I think of what uh, a lot of churches will do where it's just a quiet time of kind of pr- private confession of sins and thinking about your life. Uh, the pastor doesn't want anyone to think that he's got this huge backlog of sins, so you only get like 25 seconds or something. But uh, it's, I think of that, right? But that's not where they go first. And I think the reason is because the text doesn't emphasize that when it comes to how is it that you eat and drink judgment to yourself by taking this unworthily? And what exactly does the apostle mean by unworthily here? Not discerning the body. What do you suppose that really means where the rubber hits the road there? Well, I guess in the context of that section from 1 Corinthians, people were just going to the meal and eating and getting drunk, and they weren't thinking about it being Christ's body. They were just thinking about it being a feast. Yeah? We know they weren't because his body was heavily divided, apparently. So why does that indicate that they weren't discerning the Lord's body? Because for a body to be whole, it can't be really divided, I mean. You mean the church as yeah. a body? Okay. And that's a connection the scriptures do make. One, one loaf, right? One, this is, it's interesting that the, the two sacraments of the church are this, these things that are intended to be unifiers and somehow have become kind of some of the main dividers. Um, and even in a non-doctrinal way here, you had people who apparently had all the time in the world, independently wealthy, or they had day laborers out doing the work for them so they could show up early and they could start drinking early, they could be partying, and then when like the regular people arrived, they were already tipsy and there wasn't much left, and it was it was just a fiasco. And it wasn't just unfair or uncouth to Paul, it was it was blasphemous and it was dangerous uh, to take these things in an unworthy manner. I start to wonder though, when you read not discerning the body in the Lord's Supper, if there are ramifications for the extreme mere memorialist who approaches this thing as if there's no power in it, as if this is not in any sense eating Jesus' body and drinking his blood, but rather just something we do. Uh, If that also is, I mean, not as dangerous probably because it doesn't involve uh, and compounding that with a sin, but it, to me, seems to fit under the umbrella. It, It seems like a warning to me to take these things really seriously, to think of these, these things very highly, I, I would always want to err on the side of overvaluing baptism or the Lord's Supper. We don't want to go to, we've been talking about these pendulums going back and forth. We don't want to go to the pendulum that, you know, it's ex operari operato like we were talking about the last couple of weeks. It's a magic thing. You do it, God is like, well, he did the thing. I, got, I don't like it, but here's the grace. Obviously, we want to avoid that. But if we were going to, 
have to lean one way or the other, I would be very careful about leaning toward these things are insignificant, not powerful, not means of grace, or the, the way that we partake of Christ. Um, when you look at the origin of the Lord's Supper, too, the Jews never went to one side or the other with the Passover, did they? I mean, they didn't say the Passover was a mere memorial. Passover was a mere Passover memorial. Passover was a mere memorial. So Jesus is imbuing something that is just meant, you know, when they ask, why is this night different from all other nights? The answer is, let's read this story and talk about what happened in the past. This reminds each aspect. So when they eat the bitter herb, they don't think they're really suffering with their, their forefathers. It's a reminder of how their forefathers suffered. And so that would be maybe the memorialist aspect when Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. But clearly from Paul's teaching here and elsewhere, uh, and from, uh, especially from uh, when, when we, you know, this cup that we drink is this not a participation in his blood. This bread that we break is not a participation in his body. There, he's imbuing it with more meaning uh, than it formerly had. Uh, that's, so that's the first thing, uh, to examine yourself as to your knowledge to discern the Lord's body. So it's not about your spiritual state in this first, this first section, this first bullet point. Uh, it's about your intellectual approach to it. And I think that's important. If somebody comes to, you know, I've used the old sermon illustration before too of the, it's like a Scottish minister and there's a notorious sinner in the congregation and she's come into the church because she's at the end of her rope and the preacher sees her pass the plate without taking anything. And he comes over and he says, take it, dear, it's for sinners. Now, if you are either brave or really stupid as a preacher, you'll attempt the Scottish accent when you say it, but I'm not going to do that. Uh, And she takes it. I think it's a beautiful, beautiful picture of, yeah, like all of us feel unworthy to do this because we are, but the very fact that it's Jesus' body broken and his blood shed presupposes that we're unworthy. That's why his body was broken and his blood shed. But maybe there should be, it's probably presupposed in, in turn in that, story that he knows who this is and that she must have fallen away from the church and had some understanding of what's going on here. Because if I see just some random person pass the plate, I don't know what, why, right? I don't know, maybe they're Roman Catholic and they're just visiting with family and they have a conscience issue with taking it. Maybe Maybe they're super Lutheran, and, and if it's not consubstantiation, or maybe they belong to a congregation with closed communion, and so they only take communion with, you know, administered by their pastor and with their, I think there's beauty in that too, if that's somebody's conviction. I'm not going to go up and go, oh, Brenda, I've got your book. <laughs> I was, I'm like, as soon as she walks out, I'll have it for her, and then I can hand that's it to okay. her. <laughs> Zach, I had one thought on that. Um, it is one of the things I like about the way the deacons have been doing communion in that it gives us an opportunity to speak to every single individual. And I've actually had an individual say, um, no, I'm not able to take communion. And they were a uh, you know, first-time visitor. And I said, well, you know, why would you say that? And she said, well, I don't think I'm allowed. And so we were able to have a conversation about, you know, in our church, how we, um, you know, administer communion. And if you're a believer and you've been baptized, then, you know, you absolutely are welcome to take it. And she said, oh, well, I, I am. And I said, well, then, you know, here it is. <laughs> take it. Eat it. 
Um, and so it was a really, you know, wonderful opportunity. And that's one of the nice things that, you know, the way we've been doing it. Yeah. I mean, I, I generally try to, to cover that stuff right. at, at, at the, uh, in, it, before the words of institution as well. I think if we wanted to have more individual connection through this, maybe people could come forward for it. But, uh, you know, there's always pushback because that's too Catholic. Um, <laughs> But yeah, I, I agree. Then you, what you've got there is a interacting with that individual and, and where their soul is. And, and a church with closed communion, their argument's going to be, now I, I mean, I know my people. Uh, it's not going to be a mega church that has closed communion. Although Spurgeon, I want to talk about that in a little while, had a, an interesting approach to it uh, because he had effectively a mega church. But usually it's going to be a church that has a, a pastor over a flock-sized congregation, um, you know, about... Uh, capping off at probably 100. Jesus talked about 100 sheep and one shepherd. Uh, and that way, that pastor can know all those people and can know if this person is under church discipline or walking away and, and he can say to that person, maybe even before service, listen, are you still taking part in this sin? Because if so, maybe you shouldn't have communion today. Maybe you would, you know, or maybe we want to pray right now and you repent of it and this is a, a moment of walking away from it and you do take communion. But just to kind of say, it's for sinners. Eat it. Without knowing all the details, I think, I think there's something a little bit reckless in it. But I think, again, I think the story assumes it's a small Scottish town. He knows who she is, why she's hesitating, because everyone's already been whispering when she walked in the back of the church. And his message for her is, this is not something you need to be perfect for. This is the thing that makes you, you know, perfect in God's eyes is this grace that we are here commemorating and the broken body that we are participating in and the blood spilled that we are participating in. I mentioned, I just want to just tell you this. Uh, we, have, we have open communion here. We, we've obviously, you, you all know that. Uh, I say almost every time we have communion, um, A, you don't have to be a member of our church. You don't have to be Baptist. You don't have to be any particular label or anything other than someone who believes in Jesus Christ and has been baptized with water. Uh, and I say, but be warned that if you take it unworthily, uh, you can eat and drink damnation unto yourselves. I, 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 in fact, I have it in uh, my service manual that I, I read from. The way they did it in Spurgeon's congregation was also open communion. He didn't like the idea of having to have everyone's name written down in the rolls. This became difficult because uh, they, they had a number of stations and they had master lists and all these things. Ultimately, they had people broken up into groups so that you, you'd go to the person expecting you to come and they would give you communion. If you were a visitor, they would give you a certain number of tickets and you would give them a ticket and it would have your name on it, and then they would give you the Lord's Supper, and they would do it. You'd come the next, next time, and I think they did it monthly, monthly there too at the Metropolitan Tabernacle. You'd give the ticket, and, then, and after a few months, he'd call on you and say, I see that you've had the Lord's Supper at our church X number of times. Uh, I'm wondering if you belong to a church. And if they said, yeah, I belong to a church you know, in some charming British town name, but I'm staying with my sister right now, he'd say, okay, well, you're welcome to continue to have the Lord's Supper with us. We're glad you're here. If they say, well, no, I've just been visiting, he would say, all right, maybe one more or two more times, and then we're going to need you to either join our church or find another church, because he wanted there to be the accountability of church membership 
And you know, this is a, this is a sacrament, an ordinance of the church. It's not a private thing. You know, you'll hear. It's not as popular now, but you'll you'll read even in you know like uh, little devotional blogs and things. Uh, I almost just said something that would have distracted and become controversial. Little devotional blogs and things online uh, that will say you know pr- practice communion for one at home. You know, just take some bread and rip it and take some if you have orange juice that's fine. Whatever you got and just say these words. And to me, that's so empty because you're not participating with. A, a congregation. You're you're now completely alone, having this privatized, personalized communion with God, refeeding back into the feedback loop of very isolated, blue sky beam vertical Christianity that we have in America right now. Uh, I'm very concerned about hearing people say, "I, I do that." Um, so I think that the question comes up: What about parachurch? organizations, or that sort of thing. For example, when I was in Israel, uh, we were at the Garden Tomb, which I think is less likely to be Jesus' actual tomb than the Holy Sepulchre, but either way, it's a beautiful place and a great place to remember Jesus' death, because uh, it does fit all the uh, criteria for this would be where Jesus uh, rose from the dead, and uh, it's very beautiful, and you're in Israel. And the guy leading the group said, Zach, you're a pastor, would you officiate the Lord's Supper. And I was like, oh. <laughs> and I said, you know what? Let me think about it. And I ultimately did it. And I said at the beginning, if I, I said, I wish I'd had time to reach out to my deacons and kind of tell them I was going to do this and have them all be on board, that this is under the auspices of my church, Judson Baptist Church in, in Lansing. This isn't just some random thing going on here at this tourist site. This isn't uh, whatever, uh, Mazel Tov tours or whatever the group, the bus was or whatever. So you're welcome to join me in this, but this is under the auspices of Judson Baptist Church. We have open communion. And, and I thought that was important. And some people thought it was crazy that I would take the time to say something like that in this beautiful place rather than just let them get lost in the moment. Uh, what are your thoughts on, on that sort of thing? We, Sean, I think maybe, maybe not. Has there been communion at a Promise Keepers event? I don't think so now that I think about it. Logistically, that would be trub- uh, yeah. problematic. But like, I think theologically, it would also be a little bit troubling because that's not a church. And I think they know that. We had communion when I went to the, the huge youth event in the Superdome when I was... Uh, it was all a Lutheran thing. Mm-hmm. And, but you didn't have to be... Like, there were people being baptized there. Um, adults. Um, <laughs> in a Lutheran church. Nice. And, um, but there was communion. I don't know how they managed it. They had lots and lots of help, but like right. we were all from different churches, and you couldn't exist. different churches, but but all even Evangelical Lutheran Church of America. Yeah, okay, so probably under the auspices of a bishop or yeah. someone, right? I guess. Which I which know, is I was great. Seventeen, so I didn't. I've been to clergy gatherings, and I love it when we have communion. Uh, and I think only once have I ever had it where Dr. Williams, who was the former executive minister, officiated because he didn't want to create this hierarchical sense. He'd just have one of the pastors do it. And now that I've never thought about it before, I don't think it really was understood. It wasn't understood this was under their, their churches, uh, an ordinance of, for example, First Baptist Church of Cadillac or something. It was more like this is our association of, you know, this is American Baptist Churches of Michigan. So it's still the church. You know what I'm saying? It's still an ordinance of the church. I don't have, I don't have any 
beef with that. I love when people have the Lord's Supper together. But I think we need to make sure that we remember that the sacraments are the sacraments of the church, administered by the church, because there is an accountability element to both. Baptism, uh, you know, we have, it's not the main thing, but we have the sense of, I am saying before all of you, I follow Jesus, you saw me go in the water and you saw me come out, and I want you to help me along the way, and if needed, I want you to help correct me or uh, help lead me, and that's an accountability aspect. With the Lord's Supper, I see it, hold on. Uh, with the Lord's Supper, I have, uh, we have the notion of the leadership of the church, protecting the elements and making sure that they're dealt with. In fact, one of the reasons that, uh, we were talking about intinction uh, a couple of weeks ago, one of the reasons that some churches do that is because they can make sure that nobody takes, and in fact, also another reason that they put it on the tongue a lot of the times, instead of in the palms, both of which are acceptable in, in most traditions, is to make sure no one takes it away to desecrate in some black mass or some, you know, stupid viral video or whatever, the body of Jesus. Uh, and, and so I'm kind of in charge of it. When we were at the National Cathedral um, years ago, we, we were so amused by how, like, when they were almost done, all of the people holding, and I asked uh, a, a Episcopal minister about this, and she had no idea what they were doing. Uh, they all just started, like, wolfing down what was left. Um, I know it's problematic when they fall down on the ground. That's and, what happened. No. No. Okay. They were no. just finishing things up. Yeah. Yeah. And anyway, there there are a lot of different ways we do it, but I just think, I don't I don't think we want to get caught up in the details of all of it. I think we want to remember this isn't like your quiet time in the morning or you know your walks that you have in the afternoon and talk to Jesus. That it, that's all just kind of whatever you want to do. Great. I come to the garden alone. The dew is still on the roses. This is gathering together with. The body of Christ, and there's something, not just communion with God, but communion with one another. There's a horizontal aspect to all this. Roger, what were you saying? Um, if somebody's watching on the live stream, since we've almost gone to that now, someone's watching on the live, live stream during Communion Sunday, are they allowed to do Communion? That's a good question. Yeah, I don't think we've ever addressed that. I haven't. I've purposely not addressed it. I, I don't encourage people to, and if someone tells me they have, I don't say, Ugh! there's nothing in the How could there be something in the Bible about it? <laughs> about a live stream, right? <laughs> so, I mean, it's not alone. And, you know, if what I would like to have done, if I could, man, I wish I could go back to March of 2020 with no, what we know now. <laughs> prepared. I would like to have as we came back together, contacted people who, who were still going to be at home and brought them the elements and, and, and said, this is from the same loaf, you know, the night before, and say, go ahead and do this. Um, and I think that there would be, I think there's enough of a connection. I don't know. It's, I think it's, it's, this is basically adiaphora, right? Which means uh, disputable matters. Uh, different, I, I've, I've seen... A friend of mine who's a minister posted a, a meme, if you think you can have communion over Skype, you're probably a heretic. Ha ha ha. I, I would never go that far. I think that we just need to be careful with it and extend grace with it and as soon as possible, get back to gathering together because there is something about gathering together. But yeah, I never, I never touched it because I thought, I don't know what to say. 
And I'm certainly not going to say to people, uh, you're out because you're immunocompromised. I'm not, you know, uh, or especially some people, you know, in normal times, you'd say people who are homebound, I go to them, the deacons go to them, and we have communion with them. Uh, but during those times, we weren't even doing that. We couldn't, right? So Everybody yeah. was homebound. Yeah, it was a weird time. And I, I, I don't want to speak for Jesus unless I'm speaking words he spoke. But can anyone here imagine our Lord getting mad, you know, about that? I sure can't. You, know, you, wanted, to, you wanted to commune with me and the church and you did it over the internet? I mean, it, it's, we were providentially hindered from gathering together. So you do your best. And uh, yeah, I, I, I don't really think that there's a... Anyone who says there was an easy answer to that uh, is, yeah, not thinking it through. There, well, there was no easy and answer. And there's got to be other times when people, churches have been hindered from gathering during times of war, during times mm-hmm. of persecution. And I'm sure they had to do things more quietly and in smaller groups. And who knows, maybe somebody did that alone, but... Maybe if you knew that everybody else was doing it alone when you were all kind of separate, but you were doing it at the same time, there was a communal aspect of that? I don't know. Yeah, maybe. maybe. I don't know. You don't hear the words of institution. You don't hear the, you don't, you don't communally confess and hear uh, someone announce your, your sins are forgiven because Jesus died for you. You, you don't right. hold hands and say, sing, blessed be the tie. I don't know. The or whole thing, there's something beautiful about that. And, and it is called yeah. a communion in our tradition because... It is done in communion. The communion of the saints does this together. Is there something that would be better about saying, this is something we can't do right now, and then doing it when you can do it, and it being more meaningful when you get back together? If we had any sense, like this is going to be two months, we can wait a couple months. But I mean, by the time we gathered back together, it was June. So it had been April, May. I don't know. Okay, so it, no, it, was, it was after communion. So April, May, and June, we didn't have any communion. Uh, it was early in July, and of course there were still people uh, that were just by good judgment staying in their homes. And yeah, I think there were people then seeing something on a screen, and there were people hearing something just in their phone in their ear. And I mean, all of the these are gifts from God, right? All these technologies that either can be used uh, against Him and for sinful reasons, or can be used to glorify Him and. Uh, I don't know, can you, what about streaming hymns instead of singing them together with the church? Sounds good to me. Like, there's, there's so many gray areas in this stuff. I think returning to these core questions uh, is, is key. A little while ago, you said that the sacraments had to be done under the church, and you mentioned baptism. So you felt, you feel the same way about baptism? Yeah, yeah. And I used to baptize people. I mentioned this when we were studying baptism. I used to baptize people uh, if they just wanted to be baptized without being baptized into a church. I wouldn't do that anymore. Uh, I, I've, I've evolved on that a bit. Um, that, and That did happen at a Promise Keeper event. So. People got baptized? Yeah. Well, I, I heard from Mark King when he went to the, whatever happened in Washington. Oh, I went there. It was amazing. And he said... Zillion man march. Right. There was... There's some... Like they, in the Rick Lecking pool? I don't know where. It, I thought maybe it was the Potomac. It was, right? No, it was tanks. They brought in tanks. It was premeditated. Oh. <laughs> um, I don't know. Like if so, you're you're baptizing people as a parachurch ministry. We do that at camp sometimes at, at our Baptist camps. I just make sure that uh, I've spoken with the minister of the church that they attend. But I think you're more conscientious about that than other people have been in the past. Yeah, probably. 
Yeah, I... Because I, I was baptized at Lake Louise, mm-hmm. and it wasn't... We didn't call Burton Baptist and ask them about that. Right. Because I wasn't a member of the church, because I wasn't baptized as an adult. Yeah. <laughs> I... Well, so many <laughs> yeah, Aaron, is there any hope for you? <laughs> I've been baptized twice, so I got lots of hope. <laughs> what about um, the old idea of private masses? I think most of us as Baptists would look down on that. Uh, wealthy families would often have a chapel in their home and have mm-hmm. private masses. But I've heard people, other Protestants, compare, say, home communion with just two people there with that. Baptists, especially who tend toward the mere memorialist side, will say, hold on. Why are you doing that just with a couple of people? You're implying that there's something uh, more to it than maybe Jesus indicated. Did they have private masses because they were too good to, you know, mix with the hoi polloi? Or they like it was just a weird flex, I think. They could and they did it and they, they got extra, um, you know, extra points leveled up. That doesn't seem right. Yeah. <laughs> Alright, but how does that relate then to home communion for someone who can't come to church? Well, I think that's different if you can't or can't, uh-huh. yeah. It was just convenience, I think, that that's where you get into a problem. Yeah, like, oh... I don't feel like coming to church, yeah. so I'm going to lie I can stream. just watch it on the screen. Right. Wasn't that part of the discernment of your heart? Yes. Wait, what? I couldn't... Quite that decide that you're not going to do it because it's just not. Oh, but I think fruitful. that then if you're gonna, you can continue this layer. What if I am live streaming over with? I'm gonna pick on Penny for example. If I go, let's do it. If it's <laughs> someone else talking and live streaming with them, and we do community together still, separate from the church. Like we're not in the church building, but we're together. Like if I'm with. Has that happened? Hypotheticals. <laughs> I like that better. I mean, anything you can do to, to get closer to uh, what Jesus actually instituted. But, like, you would still, if somebody were in the hospital dying and wanted to take communion, you'd give it to them. Oh, I, I bring communion to people in the hospital all the time and yeah. to shut-ins in their homes. I have no problem with it. I'm saying that it has been a point of contention for some. That but wouldn't, wouldn't, um, but that's different again. They can't, they're physically unable to, they can't. yeah, right, okay. As opposed to, I'm choosing not to come, yeah, I'm just gonna cut up some bread and drink a little, yeah, juice I don't like that. Do it right along. If somebody came here in the middle of a week and said, Pastor, would you give me communion? And I said, Why? And they said, I'm just struggling, and I sinned yesterday, and I confessed my sins this morning, and I just really want communion. I'd be over the moon. I'd do it in a heartbeat. I don't, I don't think we want to make these like caps of how many people have to be present. <laughs> Two or more sounds like a great yeah, number. Um, <laughs> under the auspices of a church, meaning not necessarily the pastor has got to be doing it. Again, we send deacons out doing this work. Um, and there have been, like Ross Lucas, who's not on uh, staff here as a minister, he's not or, uh, or not installed here, but ordained as a minister, uh, has done that. And then others who are not even ordained. Cliff Raymond was a uh, licensed minister. He did it. And honestly, if I wasn't here uh, and we had a guest speaker who was, you know, I don't know, somebody from a local charity or something, 
Uh, I'd have no problem asking one of the deacons to, under the auspices of the church, administer the Lord's Supper. Even though it says on my ordination certificate, I am ordained to preach the gospel and administer the sacraments. This is under the authority of a church, and it's not some hocus-pocus voodoo that I'm doing up there that you'd need to learn how to do. So I, I love when I used to walk by the nursery and see uh, a deacon in there, and the kids are still running around, and someone's trying to take and, and like just this beautiful, like we're caring for kids and, and bringing them up in the faith, and at the same time, we have to have the Lord's Supper because it's, it's that Sunday. Yeah? Um, so I'm curious about the different roles between having um, elders administer it and having deacons administer it. Is there a difference? Should um, deacons be administering it? Is it, I, I guess I just, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, deacons um, help with it because they're, the word means servants, and, and so they're the ones that we have doing uh, the preparation and things. I honestly think, I mean, our, our hard and fast distinction between you're a deacon, you're an elder, probably would have been a little foreign to the early church where following the synagogue rule, you knew who an elder was. You know, it does say that Timothy's laying on hands as elders and there are qualifications, so there's some process involved. But, I mean, we for crying out loud, Sean's both. Uh, so if you want to get, you know, split hairs, we could do that. But, like... Um, I, I don't know, I, if, if we had someone who was a, a long-time Christian, had been around here for a long, long time, and had, was able to teach, I knew, understood the gospel, but wasn't on the board of elders, that person would probably be fine to administer the Lord's Supper when the people are gathered together for it. Uh, I, I don't know of a scripture that would fly in the face of that. And I don't think that necessarily means we're lowering our view of it, having a lower view of the, of the Lord's Supper. I don't, I don't know why we'd have to. I think if, if it becomes, hey, anybody want to do this? Okay, no big deal. I think it's all in the heart, right? It's all in our, our approach to it and how we think of it, how we speak of it, how we practice it. Uh, and I, I think it's a good safeguard to say there are certain people that we entrust with this because it's so sacred. Uh, but when they were gathering together in Acts chapter 2, day by day in one another's homes, for the apostles' teaching, for prayer, for the breaking of bread, and there's a debate, does that mean they were just having like the third sacrament, the Baptist sacrament of the potluck together, or were they actually having the Lord's Supper, or both, right? It started with the agape feast, and at the end you'd take bread and, and wine like Jesus did at the end of the Passover. And if that was the case, they're, they're in each other's homes doing this. Uh, I, I, that, that does bring up an interesting question. How would I feel about it if I heard that three or four families got together and had uh, a meal and at the end of it had the Lord's Supper? Um, hmm. I think the, These case so, studies are getting weird. Let's... Yeah, the initial <laughs> feeling, I think, would be like, nah. I'd be like, why? Why, though? Why, why are you starting a coup? What's going on? <laughs> Next time, invite me. Uh, let's move on to... Of their faith to feed upon him. I think that's so self-explanatory, right? Uh, no, I think you need to unpack that a little bit. Okay. Uh, without faith, the, these things are not uh, powerful. They're, they're not, again, it's not ex operari operato, meaning uh, by the act itself, magically, automatic. And it's not by the individual doing it. 
It's the faith of the worthy receiver that kind of activates the power of the sacrament. Um, I, I just said something I hadn't thought through, so it may wind up not standing up to scrutiny, but I think it makes sense. Uh, hold on, I have a little uh, catechism snippet I want to read from a different catechism. I don't know how I wound up where I am here. Catechism, there we go. Uh, this is from a catechism from 1849. Doth the efficacy of sacraments depend upon the blessing and presence of Christ? Yes, lo, I am with you always. Matthew 28, 20. And upon the cooperating influence of the Spirit? Yes, by one Spirit we are all baptized. 1 Corinthians 22, 13. And are they only effectual to those who by faith receive them? Yes. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. Mark 16, 16. So that is uh, referencing baptism, but we would say the same holds true for both uh, baptism and the Lord's Supper, that if there's no faith there and you get baptized, you just got wet. If there's no faith there and you come here on the first Sunday of the month and eat the bread and drink the little cup, at best, you just, you know, roused your appetite without bedding her back down. Uh, but you haven't gotten anything spiritually because to take these things without faith, it's just like walking up an aisle and saying a prayer. And people will say, I did that when I was nine. And I say, okay, but if it didn't change your life at all, you just walked and said you didn't really receive salvation because that will then bear fruit. Uh, These externals, and we sit in this evangelical bubble of we're so much better than this medieval church we came out of because it was all transactional and you do this and God has to bless you and you do this and God. And all we did is take the ancient biblical things that they would do and then the ancient, less ancient, but still fairly ancient unbiblical things that they used to do in exchange for God's grace and replaced them with super recent, even less biblical things. There's no cards filled out in the New Testament. It's fine if you do it. That way, you know, if you're at the Billy Graham crusade, they can send that to a church and you can get plugged into the church and they can have a record, they can follow up with you, whatever, it's great. But that's not saving you. Walking up an aisle is not saving you. So all these things, it's, it's about the, the faith and that's more true, not less true when it comes to the sacraments. The faith to partake of Jesus, of course, that's a reference to the, hold on, 2 Corinthians 13, where is it? 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Does someone want to look upon that? Their faith to feed upon him. The language of uh, our confession is that we uh, do spiritually, not corporally or carnally, but spiritually feed upon Christ and him crucified and all the benefits thereof. It is examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? All right, so the word faith there is used in the sense of the faith once for all handed down to the saints, the Christian faith. Uh, And I think you test your individual faith, and the testing whether you are in the faith means your doctrine, and ask yourself, am I a, a worthy partaker of these things? Am I, it doesn't mean you deserve God's grace. It means that you understand what is being pictured in this living picture. It means that you have submitted yourself to God, confessed your sins, denied yourself, and are there empty-handed at the the altar to receive. And if that's you, it would be silly not to. It's for sinners. All right, also to discern of their uh, repentance... 
that we've already read uh, in 1 Corinthians 11, love and new obedience, lest coming unworthily they eat and drink judgment to themselves. So if you come without repentance, meaning probably thinking that by the act of eating this and drinking this, you will be forgiven without turning from your sins, that is unworthy, and you're eating and drinking damnation to yourself. Without love, this calls to mind Jesus' command that if you are in the temple even, uh, in, in his context, and you're about to make your offering and you remember your brother has something against you, go and be reconciled with your brother. Leave the thing at the altar. Just, maybe someone will take it. I don't know. It's better that you just leave it and go. Then come back and, and offer this thing. So make sure then that uh, before you take the Lord's Supper, you don't have some bitterness inside you, some you know, feud with someone else that's blowing up and, and you're, you're full of anger and hatred. Uh, but rather full of love and new obedience, meaning that you've turned from your sin and are being made a new creation, you're being sanctified. Uh, 1 Corinthians 5.8 is the text there. Aaron, you're probably in that neighborhood. Do you want to flip over? Or Cindy, do you have that one? I'm, I'm busy writing down a different one. 5.8. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Love it. Okay. So new, sincerity, truth. Thinking of the, the what, what does leaven mean in the Old Testament? Or in the New Testament, for that matter? Well, it can mean sin. No, it doesn't always mean sin. I know you said it can mean. He said sin. People often say sin. It means sin. That's why it's unleavened bread. No sin. Jesus had no sin. He's the but. But leaven actually has to do with continuity. So when you see them leaving Egypt, I'm going to talk very briefly this morning about the festival of unleavened bread. When they left, they would have had, every day you would take a little pinch of yesterday's dough, put it in today's dough, and continue uh, leavening your bread that way. One of the most prized things that a new bride would get would be a little dough from her new mother-in-law's continuity that had that family's leaven in it. It's this continued handing down and continuity, right? So leaven is used by Jesus in a positive way and a negative way, right? A little leaven leavens the whole lump. He's talking about the kingdom. He's talking about good things. And then he says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. We're talking about bad things. Now, the unleavened bread enters the picture when they leave Egypt, and he's like, throw it out. We're not continuing with that anymore. They have a festival with unleavened bread, and then they would have to go through some process I know nothing about where you, like, germinate or something and create new yeast, and you start over. So they're making a cut from the old and starting the new unleavened. Uh, and I think that really is what we're talking about in, in that text as well. Uh, this is a new beginning. This is not taking what we had there and continuing on. This is God starting something new. And that's what he does in us as well. I think that may be more or less the size of that one. The eating and drinking judgment unto themselves is a controversial text. And a lot of people think it's <clears throat> over the top. <coughs> Some people want to make it metaphorical. When he says, for this reason, many of you have uh, fallen sick and some have fallen asleep, meaning died. In fact, the passage, uh, the translation that, that Cindy read for us said died, which is a, a good gloss for that. That's what, that's what they mean. Uh, apparently, this can have an actual effect on our 
physical lives, which is a crazy thought in a world where we so divide the spiritual from the physical and spiritual truth is one category, but then scientific truth is another category. That's foreign to the Bible. Uh, there's truth and truth is truth. And one naturally is going to affect the other. So that's a, the, the warning kind of inherent in question 81. Let's really quick read question 82. Well, let me say as, as you turn the page that I think the main thing that I would have you write maybe at the end of the sacrament thing is we meet God in these things. That's, that's what they are. They're, they're where we meet God, where he said he'll be there to meet us. Now he says, I'll be with you always. Yes, God is omnipresent. And yet, even though he's omnipresent, his particular presence was in the Holy of Holies in the temple in the Old Testament, right? Even though he's everywhere present, he particularly is indwelling us in a certain way. And even though he's there whenever two or more gather together in his name, and that's in the context of an organized church, uh, actually church discipline is where Jesus gives that, that promise, there I am also, he is particularly present in meeting us when we, in obedience to him, enter into the waters of baptism or come to the table for the Lord's Supper. Uh, and it's an honor. It is uh, something solemn, but also joyful. And I don't think it has to be either of these overly somber. Whenever I look out and see everybody, I think, you ever been to a wedding? Because that's the prototype here. This is, this is a type of the coming wedding feast. Like, it would be appropriate to think about what Jesus endured for you and be, you know, it's a somber thing. It's a solemn thing. It's a heartbreaking thing. And there's repentance involved. But when you swallow, you probably ought to smile because you're forgiven. And that's good news. It's not, it's not bad news. I'm trying to even think what the Greek would be. Uh, eh. um, all right. Question 82. What is meant by the words until he come, which are used by the Apostle Paul in reference to the Lord's Supper? Answer. They plainly teach us that our Lord Jesus Christ will come a second time, which is the joy and hope of all believers. Two things to notice. One, this is tied to the Lord's Supper. So it's a perpetual remembrance till the end of the world. Jesus says, I'm not going to have it again with you until the big one, the marriage supper of the Lamb. So there's a connection where the Lord's Supper looks back at what Jesus did. It looks around at the present, at what he's doing in us now, and it looks forward to his second coming until he come again. But also notice that this is the last question of the Baptist Catechism, that he doesn't say, what does it mean that the, <laughs> the apostle says that he will come again and, and then say, well, let's talk about exactly what that looks like. What's the Baptist view of exactly? Let's start divide and subdivide and parse out all the different possible views and then land on one. Just says, if you are one of us and you can conform to this confession and you learn from this catechism, you believe Jesus is coming again. So you might be premillennial, you might be amillennial, you might be postmillennial, you might be uh, dispensational, you might be one of these weird, you know, uh, like hybrids of progressive premillennial dispensational or something, but you believe Jesus is coming again, then you are definitely one of us. Uh, you know, that, that brings you in to the, the fold on that, on that score. Now, we're not, it wouldn't make, make me happy to be done because I'm finishing off the book of Esther today. And what if the providence all came together like that? 
Uh, but I think we're not going to be done because A, it's still just March, and B, there's more to talk about. We could, I don't know if we want to, but we could talk about different views of the end times uh, and kind of summarize them and, and learn about them. I always find that interesting to talk about. Uh, we certainly are going to continue following now the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which goes further. I, I don't know if they got tired when the Baptist divines were putting together their version or what, or if Spurgeon was like, I don't like any of it. But it, it, you even have kind of a cliffhanger, because you had the question asking about the outward means, and it said the reading of the word and prayer, and then we get to the Lord's Supper and uh, baptism, the sacraments, and then we never really delve into prayer. Every other catechism I know of, whether it's Luther's catechism, the Roman Catholic catechism, uh, any other catechism I've had, Heidelberg catechism, they, they delve into the Lord's Prayer. They take it a, a, a statement at a time the same way that we took the Ten Commandments one at a time. I think that's probably worth doing, uh, but I, we're, we're Baptists with congregational polity. I covet your uh, thoughts. Prayer is always good. Okay. And the more that we can talk about it and think about it and do it would probably be a good thing. To go right to prayer? That's the consensus? Leave the end times to the uh, weirdos on TV or something? Yeah, I think talking more about prayer is more particularly useful in daily life than Mm-hmm. sort of cerebral. Right. And the catechism is meant to be a guide in piety and teaching the faith as it's lived out. So that I think yeah. that's why you don't, you almost never have an excursus on uh, particulars of, of end times views in the catechism. I'm thinking of even new ones like the New City Catechism it's and so things. It's so funny because so many churches now might say you have to sign on to this particular Oh, you remember when, when I yeah. got ordained and I started getting unsolicited stuff in the mail left and right. You go, oh, okay, what's this? Oh, can't go there. Oh, can't go there. Because lots and lots of Baptist churches hold to a, officially hold to an end times view that I do not. And I, I couldn't pretend I do. Um, yeah, here I, I teach what I find in the Bible. And I think you have to have a lot of grace. We didn't, we didn't get it right about what it would be like when Jesus came the first time. Nobody was like, oh yeah, this is exactly how I saw it coming. And yet we're so certain we know how it'll come the second time. That's one of the classes I wanted to have. What do you think we've got wrong? (laughs) Well, if we thought we had it wrong, we'd change our view on it. So we we, we think we're right, but I think we should have varying degrees of certainty. I'm far, far less certain about my end times views than I am about my understanding of the Trinity. uh, Or that God is love. Or that Jesus died and rose again. Uh, Deborah, would you close us in prayer? Dear Lord, we are thankful so much for this beautiful day and, and for being able to come together to um, learn how how so serious it is that we are blessed to have the Lord's the Lord's Supper and that we can come to you and repent and and know with joy that we are forgiven um, when we remember the the sacrifice of Jesus and and celebrate um, how he redeemed us through the sacrifice of his body and his blood for us. Uh, Please be with us as we um, go to worship later today and just let the words that you share with us through Pastor Zach um, edify our hearts and just let us go and be the light for others as we we leave this place. Um, Let everyone be safe as we go and, 
and bring us us back. I'll see you next week. And yours is the same. Pray. Amen. Amen.